Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Hisham Awartani didn't expect to become the focus of international news when he went for a walk before dinner at his grandmother's house in Burlington on November 25th. Awartani was with his friends Kinan Abdelhamid and Tahsin Ali Ahmad, who are all of Palestinian descent and attend colleges in the U.S. They were speaking a mix of English and Arabic, and two were wearing kufiyas, the traditional Palestinian scarf, as they often did. Without provocation, Jason Eaton, a man they did not know, stepped off his porch and shot the three 20-year-old men. Eaton has been charged with three counts of second-degree attempted murder, and the state is still deciding whether to add a hate crime charge. The trial will likely be in 2025. Awartani, a student at Brown University, was the most gravely wounded of the three friends, who were classmate at the Ramallah Friends School, a Quaker high school in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. A bullet lodged in Hisham's spine, and he is now paralyzed below the abdomen. He has spent the last two months at a rehab hospital in Boston. He recently fulfilled his goal of returning to study at Brown, where he is an archaeology and mathematics double major. A GoFundMe established to support Hisham's recovery has already raised $1.7 million. This week on the Vermont Conversation, we spend the hour with Elizabeth Price, the mother of Hisham Awartani. Elizabeth Price, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. I want to begin by asking what so many people, and particularly so many people in Vermont, uh, want to know, which is just how is Hisham doing right now? That's a big question, because um, there are so many different ways that he could be and is doing. Um, he is um, he's back at university. And, you know, in the, the for his first statement released to the Brown community within 24 hours of, of being shot, uh, Hisham promised that he'd be back for the next semester. And I didn't think that would be possible when I talked to people who with, who are experienced with spinal cord injuries, but he's back. And he's, he was back within a week of the start of the semester. He's living independently on campus, um, working very hard. Hisham has the practice of doing five uh, courses a semester. And this time he has um, downgraded it to three courses a semester, which is still a lot. He's doing two graduate level math courses and an archaeology course. And he's doing two hours every day of uh, physical uh, rehabilitation. Um, he's resolute and he's determined, he's focused, and he is, he's calm and accepting, you know, he's not accepting of his situation because he definitely wants to, um, he has a strong ambition to, to learn how to walk again, but he is, um, he's at peace with where he is. Um, and again, that's not even right. It's about, like I said to him recently, I said to him, Mark, are you angry about what happened? He said, well, what's the use of being angry? Um, and I get the sense that he just gets busy with the, the the workings of life and pursuing what he used to do and getting back to what he used to do. And, and that becomes his focus. So he's resolute and he's, and he's steadfast. I always use these the English translations of the word samuds, which is um, a word that it describes uh, a major Palestinian philosophy of just 
getting on with it, just continuing to do what you can do despite what the world throws at you, just um, sticking with your path, um, staying where you are, um, being committed to what you were doing regardless of, of what the world um, what the world does. You have been Hisham's mother for 20 years, um, but now you know him in a way you've never known him before. What has surprised you about your son as you've seen him go through this? I think what I'm seeing, if you, it's a bit like when you look at a, a baby, when you first meet a baby, they just look like a baby. And then when you look at their picture, baby pictures 20, 30, 40 years later, you see that they were always there. That grown-up face was always in that chubby little baby face. Hisham's qualities were always there. I mean, he's always been an unusually, he's always been an unusual boy. Um, questing for information, deep thinking, um, always conscious about other people and how they think and curious about that. Um, I'm not surprised at who he is and how he's handling this, but I am in awe of it. And, and I have deep, deep respect um, for it because his natural deep thinking and philosophical, logical nature has allowed him to process what's happened in a way that has not, as he likes to say, broken his stride. Um, and I think it, it is remarkable. I think every parent stops and says, what have I wrought? How is this creature so incredible? You learn from your children in a way that astonishes you um, and makes you feel incredible awe every day. And so I think that Hisham has come into his own. Um, and so I am, I'm, I'm just so lucky to be his mother. I've learned so much from him. Tell me about Kinan and Tahsin and how they're doing now. They have returned to school. They returned to school within a week of being shot. Um, <clears throat> um, Kinan got out of the hospital first um, and Tahsin about a week later, and they were back within a week um, and got back into uni university life. It's been a lot for them. It was incredibly traumatic for them to leave the hospital. Um, it was so fresh, that confrontation with death that I think physically um, and socially it was it was a lot to process. But they have, they've just gone gone back to into their um in into their lives and i think are very grateful for what they have um they're grateful that they're alive still and grateful that they have the chance to um to make something of, of their lives that have been protected by fate i know that you have uh as any mother would been very protective of hisham and his privacy but you in January, um, he was interviewed for the first time on NBC News. What went into your thinking and his thinking about deciding to speak publicly at this at that point? I think Hisham believes that it, it believes that there is if there's a chance for him to really raise his voice in support of of what's happening and. Of the, in support of the Palestinian people and to highlight the humanity of the people being killed in Gaza and in the West Bank. Um, I think it's, he sees that as important. Um, I think it came at a time where he was beginning to emerge from the intensity of the after effects of the shooting and thinking about moving forward. I think it was also because uh, it gave him a chance to see Kanan and his his friendship with his, his um, 
what are pretty much that his brothers is incredibly important to him. Um, but I think Hisham walks this fine line between wanting people to hear about what's happening in Palestine and also a, a natural reluctance um, to put himself forward. He's a very private person, but he also doesn't, he struggles to understand why people are focusing on him and not the other Hishams who are being shot and killed in Palestine. And uh, we'll definitely return to that larger issue in a moment. Um, I want to talk about the, uh, the the specific issue. Talk about when you heard the news of the shooting in Burlington. Um, and of course, the irony was that he was in Burlington to be safe, as I understand it. Yes, he... Um... He, his father was very reluctant to have him come back to Palestine. Hisham wanted to come back. Um, at times like this of conflict and, and terrible pain, it is easier to be with your community and your family. And so Hisham was really, really wanted to be back in Palestine. Um, and Ali, uh, my husband, did not want him to come back because he thought it would be too dangerous. The road from the border to Ramallah is beset by settler violence, um, as well as just, you know, the nightly raids by the Israeli military into Ramallah. So both the settlers and the Israeli military cause great, uh, pose great risk to young men. Um, <clears throat> and so Hisham was in Burlington um, and we think of Burlington like we think of Ramallah. They're both, you know, Ramallah within the confines of the checkpoints, if you're just in Ramallah itself. Um, and Burlington are like 1950s towns. You know, you, you walk down town in Ramallah, you walk down, walk down town in Burlington and you see people you've seen many times before. And, and you know, it's, it's a place where it's a known community. And the area that my mother lives in is a one of families. So people pop in and out of each other's house and doors aren't locked. And the first time Ali ever went there, he said, this is just like Palestine, just like the village I grew up in. You know, that, that everyone knows each other and everyone is comfortable with each other and, and the community itself is like one large house um, with each house being like a room um, in that house. Um, but where my son was shot was at the edge of that small community um, where there are more multi-residence houses where it, I guess, depends on the landlord of, of the residences to monitor who's being in that um, house. And I think there is some, it, it, so that's what where it happened. Um, <clears throat> and when I heard about Hisham being shot, I was sleeping. Um, Hisham, Ali had been very sick. Um, and so I was sleeping in a separate room to give him some space. And uh, the phone rang. Richard, my brother, called me at 2.30 in the morning. And I hung up thinking it was a, a missed call. And I said to him by message, you know, this was a mistake. I'm sleeping, right? And uh, he rang again and I answered and he said, uh, Elizabeth, I'm in the hospital with Hisham. He's been shot. And at that moment, when I heard that the other boys had also been shot, my first reaction was, I'll deal with what happened to Hisham in a second. I'm really worried about the other boys because the other boys were visiting my family, which means that they got hurt on my family's watch and what am I going to say to to them their families um and it's just, I don't really know why my brain went that way I think it's just a way of thinking about other people before you think about your own um 
Hisham was alive and that's what counted. Um, at the time though, when, when you hear that someone's been shot, you think, oh, they've, they've been shot, the bullet is there, it'll be taken out or the bullet's gone through and, and then they're gonna get up and walk away. You, you don't think, about, your mind doesn't automatically go to paralysis or mobility restrictions or, or disabling effects. So it took me another, I'd say, 12 hours before I realized that Hisham had lost uh, the control over his, his lower limbs. So it was, it was a slowly unfolding understanding of, of this new reality that Hisham was living in. But he was seriously ill. Um, I saw him in the ICU over, over you know, when my brother called, over video call, and he was um, really cold. He was shivering um, intensively because his body was going into shock. Um, they had him on with a blanket heating him. And I later read in, in the medical reports that they had prepared the protocol for major organ failure. You know, so that that's more of a preparatory. I don't know how close it was he was to the, that type of sudden descent um, health wise, but um, he was seriously, seriously ill for the first twenty four hours, um, and then he stabilized and and um, and and yeah, and that's when we found out that he had lost the ability to to move his legs. So they knew that quite quick, quite quickly. Um... Uh, Hisham says that when the EMTs asked him to move his legs and he couldn't, whilst on the ground on the streets in Burlington, he realized that there was something wrong. Um, and I would say that the doctors immediately knew there is a test that you can do to identify um, spinal cord injury. And I would say the minute that they took him to the ICU, into the ER, I mean, um, they had they were able to determine that he had lost his yeah, lost access to his legs. What was your and your husband's reaction on learning that news and, and all, you know, just the news that they'd been attacked? Um, well, in, in moments of shock, you, you move into a, a different state of, of thinking where you start processing information piece by piece. Um, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a very kind of compartmentalized um, logical person. And so I, I, I went into action. That's what I did. So I, I started thinking of things I had to do. Um, and I knew that Hisham was with my mother and my brother. And, and so I knew that he was in safe hands. Um, and um, I think for, for, it was hard for my husband because I had to wake him up um, and he was deeply asleep. And, you know, it was very hard for him to hear that as well, because, you know, my my husband, he commits himself fully to taking care of his children, their security, as well as their nutrition and their mental and spiritual health. And to find out that Hisham's security had been violated was a shock and a, and a terror for him. It was very hard for him to know that his son was lying hurt and had been hurt on his watch, even though it was so far away. So um, after we heard the news and after we called the calls that we could do, because it was three in the morning, we just talked to, I talked to the, the family of, 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 of um, Kinan and I talked to my, my, my family. We just sat and tried to understand what was going on. What do you know about their attacker? 
and why he did this. What, um, that, that whole side of the story has largely gone dark. Well, I think he has not said anything. Um, and that makes it difficult to understand what he did. I think there's a common feeling amongst the families and the boys that he is less relevant than the context in which he took his action. I describe it as a lightning strike from a national weather system. Uh, he pulled the trigger, but he was motivated by hateful dehumanizing speech by elected representatives and media. And since he shot them, it's become much worse. The actions of the of the of the U.S. government, um, both the Biden administration and elected officials in the, in in, the, in Congress, have shown over and over again that Palestinian life is not valued. In fact, it is un devalued by um, mainstream American institutions. So he is for I mean for us. The most important thing is to, is to highlight the fact that when you have over 30,000 Palestinians dead at this point, you know, at that point there were, you know, 10,000 Palestinians dead, mostly children and many of them women, um, then it is kind of a causal linkage. If you see a Palestinian and you have a hateful mindset, then you think you can get away with, with killing a Palestinian because the government ships arms to a, a country that has had a genocidal argument heard against it by an international court of justice. So for us, the shooter is less relevant. He shot, it's over, he's in prison, but he chose to shoot because of a larger, a larger mindset, cultural political mindset that is still endangering Palestinians in America. You know, only a few weeks ago, a young man was pulled out of his car and, and stabbed multiple times because he was Palestinian and because he was wearing the keffiyeh and had a Palestinian flag on his car. Say you know, what, this, the, what does the keffiyeh mean and why was it important to the three young men to be wearing that just as part of their everyday garb? Well, the kufiya is tradition. It's a black and white um, uh, checked scarf that was traditionally worn it, it, on the heads of of Palestinian farmers. Um, it, it it drapes over the head and provides uh, protection from the sun and warmth in the cold. Um, it's a it has become the symbol of of Palestinian culture, but it's also just a very useful. Um, it's a very useful piece of clothing. And that's exactly what the boys were, were doing. They were they wear the kofiyah. I wear a kofiyah. It's just a scarf that Palestinians wear. Um, and you can get them in different colors. And um, there's a factory in Hebron that produces them with, you know, beautiful variations. And they're just, it's a lovely piece of, of Palestinian culture that keeps you warm or, or keeps you cool in, in the heat. Um, but at a time, you know, when they were shot, the boys had already gone through nearly two months of great pain watching um, hundreds of Palestinians, hundreds of Palestinian children killed almost every day under or under bombardment. And, and they felt it was important for them to have something 
from their home close to them. They are proud Palestinians um, and they also are Palestinians who like to stay warm. So it was a kind of a combination of utilitarian and also just a way of just reminding themselves that they have they have this link to a, a land that is is suffering while they're so far away. As you've been uh, back in the States now, do you ever get anybody reacting to you wearing a keffiyeh? Because we certainly hear that, um, that just the wearing of it seems to elicit responses. Well, again, I think it has to do with, with the, the larger cultural mindset. Um, and that depends on where you are. So um, in... Uh, in, in Brown, where I am right now in Providence, there are students who wear, there's lots, lots of students who wear kufia. I mean, Provid Brown is a, a, a campus in which 19 students just did an eight day hunger strike um, and asking the Brown Corporation to divest from um, companies that profit from the military occupation of Palestine. So in many ways, wearing a kufia on the Brown campus is a, is a bit of, oh, yes, you believe in the same things I do. And it's positive. If I were wearing a kufia in other places where, you know, um, there is a historical prejudice against Palestinians, I probably would be experiencing um, some potentially be experiencing some backlash. Um, but I see these moments as an opportunity to have conversations because I would say that most Americans haven't had the chance to really learn about Palestine and learn about what's going on in Palestine. I have seen people come visit for Palestine from, you know, foreigners come visit Palestine many times over the decades that I've been in Palestine. And without a fail, everyone who comes suddenly says, oh, I understand what's going on now. This is, this is occupation. This is apartheid. And they immediately Re revise their thoughts. You know, I worked with a, a Vermont-based company for many years in Palestine, and um, consultants would come, American consultants would come, and they would come clearly determined to remain kind of neutral and observe, and, you know, they don't don't want to get pulled into the rhetoric that they saw. Um, and then within a day, they were just so outraged and so angry, their neutrality being blown out of water by the reality of what they saw um and what um take us there what do they see what do you, what is your everyday life and hisham when he was growing up uh in the israeli occupied west bank in do you live in ramallah i do i live in ramallah um i live in a quiet neighborhood near downtown ramallah it's it's hard to it's hard to do that just in, i can definitely when we'll definitely do the big give the big picture but you know is when i look back i was saying to a friend yesterday that you know someone something had come someone had come to visit jerusalem and they were going to come visit us but for some reason i can't remember why that we everyone was really depressed and the roads were not safe and i couldn't remember this was before the war and I can remember what it was because every season there is a new loss for the Palestinian people. There is always something that the Israeli military occupation has taken, whether it be lives or land or access um, or money from the governments. You know, the Israeli government under the economic protocol set up in the mid 90s is in charge of collecting all the revenues at the borders for the Palestinian government. And they routinely confiscate that money and hold it hostage. And that's about 60 to 7% of the Palestinian government's revenues, um, which means that the Palestinian government can't pay its civil servants. And so my in-laws, my two sisters-in-law and a brother-in-law um, get have been, haven't been paid 
full salaries for years. And, and since the Gaza war and since the Israelis have taken even more money from the revenues, they haven't got paid at all. Um, and so it's just a constant experience of deprivation and loss and loss of dignity, um, loss of, it's not even worse than dignity, loss of hope. Um, it's a daily life for my children nowadays is the school gets shut down because there's a general strike because someone has been you know, killed by the Israelis um, in protest. Um, there's a solidarity protest. And so, you know, when the school has been shut, you know that some child has been killed because they're often children. Um, or when we go to Hanepta, my husband's village, we have to go through multiple checkpoints and sometimes there'll be a flying checkpoint and we'll have to, a flying checkpoint means a checkpoint that's just rapidly set up. And I mean, there are checkpoints everywhere. Every Palestinian town or village has a checkpoint outside. And so at any moment, the Israeli military can shut down all movement in the West Bank. Um, the settlers are constantly trying to take more land. Um, and there explain was... for people who don't know about the settlers, who are they and, and what does it appear like? I mean, there's, so, these are people who are not in uniform. These are civilians. Yeah. In 1967, when the Israelis won the Six-Day War very quickly, um, Zionism, which had been a secular movement, transformed into what they call religious Zionism. There were people who, I mean, Zionism is, is the belief that there should be a Jewish state on the land of Palestine for Jews um, and only Jews. Um, and the, it had been a very secular uh, movement that had grown out of, you know, the, the, the political movements um, in Europe in the 20th century, 19th century. But the religious Zionism was a decision or a belief that they'd won the war so quickly that, in fact, maybe God had decided to give them the entire of, 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 the, of historical Palestine, um, which included the West Bank. And at that point, they started taking land in the West Bank and setting up what settlements. So uh, there are two types of settlements. One is a settlement that is funded and encouraged by the Israeli government. And they're often on the borders uh, within the Green Line, which is the, the internationally recognized um, border of the West Bank of Palestine. And those are economic communities. Those are sleeper communities and um, bedroom communities. And so there are people who work in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv and they live there um, and they're subsidized by the government. It's you get you pay less tax, you, pay, you get more um, services. And those are um, they look a lot like the settlements that, or the, the developments I see in California, large tracts of terracotta, terracotta roofed houses. They all look the same. They're very green. They have swimming pools. Um, Israeli settlers in, in general uh, receive like 10 times the amount of water that Palestinians do in the West Bank. You know, so you'll get a village that has no water. Um, and right next to it, you'll have a settlement that has um, green lawns and and uh, pools. There's a different type of settlement settlers there that the religious Zionist settlers. Um, they're the ones who um, live in the settlements deep, deep, deep in the West Bank. Um, and some a lot of those are set up by the settlers without permission by the from the Israelis. But the minute that they're set up, they set up caravans. Um, the minute that the, the, they're set up, the Israeli soldiers are then sent to protect them. And at that point, from then on, the Israeli military becomes complicit with them. Um, they confiscate land um, due to the rather um, uh, archaic way that land was controlled under the Ottoman Empire. 
um, land is not held individually by a, a Palestinian. They'll often be held by families um, and they weren't registered in a way that you have individual ownership. So what would happen is that a lot of the land that is taken by settlements is taken by the state. And said so they say, well, you clearly don't have you, you individual who have the, uh, the olive orchard here. You have no proof that this is your land as an individual. So we're going to take it as state land or we're going to take it as a military firing zone. And you can't come here because we now have a state defined use of it, an Israeli state defined use of it. And then all of a sudden that military firing zone is, is turned into a settlement. So it's a gradual confiscation through um, exploitation of, of, of the land ownership practices. Um, Elizabeth, I wonder if you could just share your family's story and what brought you to Palestine. My story is that I grew up internationally. Um, I'm Irish American English or British, um, and I grew up in Asia and Africa and England. Um, when I was in, in London, I knew Palestinians at the American School in London. And when I was later at Harvard doing an anthropology degree, I had to write a paper on Palestinians. Uh, I had to write a paper on refugees. And so I chose to do it on Palestinians and then chose to um, go to Palestine to do to take uh, to do some original research. And the Palestinians I know in London arranged for me to get a job there. While I was there, I was working at the Birzeit University, which is like the, the lead university there. And I met my husband. Um, while I was there. But more importantly than meeting my husband in many ways, for the month before I met my husband, I met Palestine. I arrived um, after the Hebron massacre. And again, very typical of life in Palestine. The Hebron mass massacre is where, uh, when Baruch Goldstein went in, who was a settler in Hebron, which has experienced horrific um, settlement policies um, and treatment. It's, it's, it's eviscerated that ancient town. Baruch Holstein went into the mosque there, the leading mosque, um, and um, I think he shot like 40, 30, 40 people um, at, while they were praying, um, men of different ages. And immediately after the massacre, the Palestinians uh, crossed the West Bank and probably Gaza were put under curfew for 40 days. So that's a kind of very typical experience of life. And what year in, was in, that? This was in 1994. Uh, and Ben Gvir, who is a, a minister um, in the current Israeli government, has had a Baruch Goldstein's picture on his wall because they, they believe he was a righteous man. Um, anyway, so I arrived after that. The Israeli military was still on the on the streets of Ramallah. It was still a direct uh, occupation, military occupation. But it, it they were about to implement the Oslo Accords, which had been signed the year before. And so while I was there, um, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, arrived into Jericho um, and Gaza. And so it was a time of, of great excitement, of great national rebirth, of great joy, while at the same time, the second, the first and the father was still still continuing. I would walk through the streets of Ramallah and see soldiers shooting tear gas at young men, you know, who were burning tires to try and stop their, their progress through the streets. Um, I met my husband at the university there. And, you know, so it was a combination of a love affair with an ancient land, its incredible history, incredible sophistication of, of its culture, and also this incredible story of a people under occupation. 
Um, I'm an anthropologist. I consider life in Palestine um, my graduate degree. I mean, I'm always learning something new about religion, about language, about, you know, uh, farming culture, about uh, old folklores, about philosophical existential questions, moral issues. I've never I've never been bored in Palestine because there's always something incredibly um, challenging for, for me to wrap my heads around. Um, and that's how I ended up in Palestine. And my husband and I married in 2001 and we had Hisham in 2003. Um, we moved to, Pal to, to California for a few years because the second and the father, which had broken out, um, which we married in the midst of, um, had basically ended my husband's um, economic opportunities. And so we went... Um, came to America, had Hisham, and then went back in 2004 to be with um, the family again there. Did you and do you um, worry about, uh, you know, you have a choice. Uh, you can live in the States. Um, of course, we now know <laughs> that doesn't mean you're not subject to violence as well. Um so I guess in some ways, this is sort of a silly question, because the, for you, you've been disabused of any idea that there is a safe haven. Well, I think it's it's interesting. Someone said to me yesterday when I said I lived in Palestine, they said, you know, I wouldn't go there. And what I always say is that life in Palestine is really beautiful. Um, it, it's a community where people still take care of each other. They still put each other first. Um it's a place where I feel my, it's a wonderful place to raise children. I have six sisters-in-law. My husband's the only son. Every uh, weekend, the sisters-in-law gather around in our building and we sit until late talking and um, laughing and playing cards. And even in the midst of, of, of miserable political economic situations, there's joy to be found in family. If I ever run into any type of problem, all I have to do is pick up the phone and call a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law and they'll come immediately to help me. One, one moment recently that really drove this home to me was when um, we, when, when my sister-in-law was talking about something that bad that happened and she's like well I you know she's like I know we're having a hard time what happened to Hisham was really hard for us but those those family are, are also suffering and I the fact that she just so naturally took on Hisham's experience as her own experience just speaks to me of what it's like to be part of a family there you everything you have is theirs everything they have is yours and it's just from their hearts they give everything and that sense of incredible security that this unconditional love that my children get from my sisters-in-laws um, and my the larger family the fact that they are incredibly valued as 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 parts of them you know it's we are one body as a family and we 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 love each other like we love ourselves um that security you can't get in in many places um and I, I, it would be very hard to leave that behind. Um, so let me bring it back into the, the present state of the world. What was your reaction on hearing about the October 7th attack um, on Israel? That's a really complex question. Um, the death of anyone is a terrible thing. Um, whenever I see anyone suffering, my immediate thought is 
of the baby that they were when they were born. Um, many people, I mean, just that's it. We, we all start as babies. And as a result, the death of anyone who was a baby is a, is a, is a, is a terrible, I tragedy is too, too easily used a word. Um, I was shocked. I was horrified. Um, and I was overwhelmed um, by what happened on October 7th. Were you fearful of what would happen in the aftermath? Yes, I was. I spoke to a friend of mine in Gaza that day or the next day. And she said to me, um, she was just desperate. She was asking me for reassurances that they weren't going to bomb and that they weren't going to take revenge. Um, and she just, it was, it was horrific um, because she, she, they did bomb and she lost her, her, her mother-in-law and her husband's, you know, family. They were shot in the streets and left to bleed out um, on the, on the, I think it was about a week before Hisham got shot. And she called me from Gaza, from Southern Gaza, because they had fled to Southern Gaza. And she said um, that this, they'd heard this had happened. Um, her husband's family were in Northern Gaza. And she asked me if I could try and get in touch with the Red Crescent and the Red Cross and see if they could evacuate them. Um, because there was no way for, it was very difficult to get telephone calls outside of Gaza at that point because the Israeli military would suspend the, um, would block the, the telecommunications. So I called the Red Cross and I called the Red Crescent and both of them told me that um, there was, the Israelis were not coordinating with them in terms of ambulances. So there was no way to get, to retrieve them. Um, and their bodies lay on the ground for two weeks before they got, were able to be rescued. They, the, the mother-in-law, the, the brother-in-law and their children hmm. had died, you know. So what I was afraid of happened and it's continuing to happen actually i had no idea what would happen would happen to this scale and the fact and and october and november were weeks of great depression for for us because we thought at some point it would stop that the world would say this is enough this is ridiculous this is just you can't this is a travesty i mean when the war started everyone knew that um the majority of, of people in Gaza were children. Um, and at no point did anyone raise their hand and stop it. And to know that this can happen is a great disillusionment. I mean, it feels naive to say that right now because you look around at other countries where this has happened and this has a, is happening or and it will happen. And the recognition that humanity is put aside when it comes to political machinations and realpolitik makes you wonder what will, is there, are there any red lines for certain governments and politicians? What are your thoughts on the position taken by President Biden and the U.S. in this war, in the role, you know, in the way that they're uh, just, you know, your thoughts on that? I think that America is being made a fool of by Israel. I mean, let's just let's just take from that point of view. I mean, because I, I obviously think that um, that 
Israel, I think Israel is, is committing a genocide. It's committing, committing a domicide, which is a, is a total destruction of a city. It's con- committing cultural cultural aside, <laughs> they have destroyed the intelligentsia and the professional staff uh, uh, classes. They have bombed all um, universities, they just devastated schools, all the national archives, archeological sites, museums, it's all gone. Um, there is a extermination going on in Gaza. Um, I think that the fact that the administration is standing by, not just standing by, but sending more aid all the time, that, so, so what's, the the extermination in Gaza is being done with American weapons, with our our taxpayers' money. So obviously, from a from a moral standpoint, I think this current government is is morally corrupt, um, and I think it is complicit in genocide. If Israel is found guilty of genocide, um, then I think the Biden administration will be seen as complicit. Um, I think that, um, but on the like the bigger picture, for I think something that all Americans should be thinking about is that um, the Biden administration is to be she's been shown as having bark and all, no bite, and I think that is is very disturbing on a global point of view that they continually ask they continually talk about how the the Israeli government and military is going over the top and it should do this and it should do this and it should do this while shipping. Um, more weapons and more money to those same institutions. So I think that uh, America is losing its global standing um, and people are European partners, um, Southern world partners are seeing that America has empty rhetoric. And I think that is disturbing. Um, I think that we, the region is moving towards a war uh, that is provocated by um, the Israeli actions, by um, an American government actions. I mean, how many Americans have been killed in, in Gaza and the West Bank? And yet when three soldiers were killed in Jordan, they bombed um, Yemen. I get it. The, the calculations don't add up, which make it very difficult for people to look at the American government and see it as a um, a, a leader that it can a world leader that it, they can depend on. How you you know we began by talking about the dehumanization of Palestinians that um, Hisham's experience is a part of. How is it something that Hisham has experienced in his time here? He's been in university now, uh, you know, for several years. He comes back and forth, um, or you know, where where does that? touch on your lives prior to the shooting um in palestine um it is dehumanizing to be palestinian with the israelis um his hisham has repeatedly said that he he wouldn't he did he realized this was if within the realm of possibility as he says that he would get shot um and but he assumed it would be in palestine um the minute you enter uh, Palestine. And to enter Palestine, you have to go through Israeli borders because Palestine doesn't have any independent borders. You are treated as um, a security threat, no matter what age you are. I mean, I have a, you know, a donkey was arrested at one point because he didn't have the right papers. Anything Palestinian is suspect and anything Palestinian can be dealt with as a security threat and justification can be found out afterwards. Um, children, I mean, there are children who are killed, uh, children who get arrested. Um, you know, there are 
thousands of children in palace in Israeli military detention. And the Israelis have a practice of detaining without charge. So it's called administrative detention. You can be held for months on end without any charge being laid against you for security purposes, for security just justification. And um, children are under administrative detention all the time. Um, so it is, and then you, you know, violated physically, uh, abused verbally, mentally, um, at any point in your daily life, if you are confront an Israeli soldier, um, and you know many people cross checkpoints every day to go to work, uh, to go to the hospital, um, to try and get out of their village, which is potentially sealed off by the Israelis, where you have to get permits to come in and out of your village. To be a Palestinian is to um, to be considered less than human by the Israeli military and the Israeli civilians and the Israeli government. So. Hisham has been dehumanized his entire life um, by the Israelis. And I think that um, the struggle that Palestinians are committed to is is recognizing that they are human um, and they have value, despite what the Israelis say and despite what the global community says. I work mm -hmm. in international and, you know, I see... The, you know, the, the people on the ground around me who, who are from different European capitals, for instance, who work on the technical issues, they struggle every day with the fact that they are part of a process that dehumanizes and um, steals from the Palestinians. And the fact that their capitals require them to, um, to live in an Alice in Wonderland world where, you know, you have to work to support a two-state solution when it's clear that um, there is no two-state solution left because the Israelis have taken, the Israeli government and settlers have taken everything. Um, and the people that they work alongside and that they have, they, they work for, the Palestinians, are are being robbed constantly. Um, and, and yet the European community and the global development community, um, their headquarters are, are not are not recognizing that, not taking action on that. So it's at the highest level. When you have, when you're complicit with international policy, with an occupation, and the dehumanized actions of the occupation, um, you 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 cement it further. So Israel could only do what it does within the West Bank and and in Gaza. Um, because of its international backing. And I can only assume that those governments are prioritizing their material um, benefit over the lives of the Palestinians who they also send millions of dollars to, to um, so that they can survive under occupation. The, the international community funds the military occupation of, of Palestine. Tell me what is your work, Elizabeth? What do you do professionally? I am a consultant and I work on, um, I guess, international development is the easiest way of describing it. But I've done um, work with uh, many different sectors. I've worked with local government. I've worked with um, public finance management. I've worked with education. I've worked with parliamentary reform, government reform, um, many different things. Uh, I, nowadays, the work I do most is working on the concept of resilience, economic resilience, community resilience, um, because resilience is what they fund when they can't solve the problem. Um, I would say resilience is probably often used in, in places that have climate threats to communities. You, If there's vulnerability, instead of solving the problem, you fund resilience. So... Well, let, me, let me ask, uh, you mentioned earlier that there were student hunger strikers at Brown University where uh, Hisham is a student. 
What difference does that kind of activism make, uh, the activism here in the U.S. and the solidarity here? Um, you know, yeah, what is your thought on that? Well, I think on having lived in Palestine, um, having been in Ramallah during the, the first months of the war, that activism is an incredible boost of, of it's an incredible gift to the Palestinians. You know, seeing um, the Jewish groups who are against the war um, occupying a Grand Central Station, that was incredibly moving. And I think so many Palestinians were touched by that. I mean, that's just one example. Um, seeing that means that Palestinians feel like they are not being forgotten. Because when you have a genocidal action against you, um, and then this creeping annexation and brutalization in the West Bank um, happen with, with it being allowed by all the governments around you, you assume that you've been forgotten or written off. And so to see this type of action uh, gives Palestinians a sense that they are not alone. And it's an incredibly important thing. Um, and their belief in humanity. Um, I also think that it, you know, it, it changes, it changes conversation. It also reminds um, people that this is something that needs to be taken into consideration in policy. And I think the, 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 the wonderful, I think, I think social media has been an incredible gift to this situation because in the mainstream media, I heard an analysis on NPR recently that said, you know, um, over the last um, period of, of the Gaza war, almost actually no Palestinians were brought on to, to comment in the, the Sunday talk shows. Um, and of more Israelis were brought on than than um, than anyone uh, in from that region. Um, and everyone who talked about Palestine um, was talking about it and from, about the war and the occupation and, and the, what's going on in Gaza, talked about it from a neutral or a pro-Israeli point of view. So the mainstream media does not provide information. The New York Times is absolutely famous for having passive discussions. You know, Hind, the young girl who got shot, who got left in a car um, of her family who had all been shot while she was on the on the line to Red Crescent and then was found two weeks later dead. You know, the New York Times said something like, you know, a girl dies in car. You know, she was she and her family were obviously killed by the Israeli military, but the Israeli military is never, act, you know, addressed as an actor in these uh, deaths that are reported or these bombings that are reported. So the social media highlights um, these these demonstrations and allows for people to understand what's going on and to the point that they can learn about it. And so the fact that 19 young people, only a few of whom were actually even Palestinian, chose to stop eating and suspend, suspend their normal life. I mean, they all have very, very busy academic schedules. They're at a prestigious, rigorous university to suspend their normal life, to not eat, to face the consequences from the government, from the from the university administration, to have to organize all of this because they believe in humanity. I mean, there were one was a Hawaiian, um, a young Hawaiian who believed in solidarity with other indigenous communities. Another was, you know, there were several were African American who recognized the the similarity between the oppression of Palestinians and the oppression of African-Americans or black people in America. Others were Jews who said that this had, they believed in, in never again to be, to be, you know, to be about this, you know, it was that action underlines how important this is as humanity 
for humanity. And I think it elevates the Palestinians out of the, the denigrating, restrictive, negative stereotypes that have been it's been put into by the mainstream media and um, made into something that you can actually feel about as a human and therefore take an action on. So it's a humanizing uh, effect and that is that is disseminated through social media. And I think it's incredibly important. What does the future hold for Hisham and um, also yourself and your role? And I and and talk about how you're part of Hisham's life now in uh, his everyday life. So, I'm staying on Hisham. I'm staying on Brown campus. Brown has been incredibly wonderful. Brown has been such a um, a family for us. The administration has been so supportive and given us so much resource, so many resources and so much uh, just kindness to us. Um, they have, I'm staying on campus. They've given me a room. I'm about five minutes walk away. So I see Hisham every day. I do his shopping. I'm his chauffeur. I'm his maid. I do everything that he doesn't, shouldn't have to do so that he can focus on learning how to function again, as well as catch up with the two classes he hasn't finished from last semester and the three classes he's doing now. He has, and then he's just learning how to move around the campus in with these new mobility restrictions. Plus, every day he spends two hours doing physical rehab, and I drive him there. Um, so, my husband and I are going to be taking turns doing that because we have two other children. So, I haven't seen my daughter since late November. So, I'm going back soon to see her, and my husband is coming to take my place and and to be here. Um, Hisham um, wants to be an archaeologist. He is studying, he was doing pure mathematics. Um, he's doing like five courses uh, a semester in pure mathematics and, and languages. He loves languages. He's been doing um, a Farsi Persian for the last few years. <laughs> and he wants to be, but now he's decided he wants to be an archaeologist. So he's hoping to go to Sardinia this summer to do an archaeological dig there. And in his future, um, he is looking forward to understanding, you know, understanding history and making sense of history. Um, I think, you know, I think his plan is to go back to Palestine in the future. Um, you know, we have a wonderful family there. Um, he has, I think, 21 or 22 grand, uh, sorry, cousins. And like I said, six, six aunts um, and family and friends. And he has a place and we have um, roots there. Um, I don't know what Palestine would look like. Um, in Palestine, we only ever kind of do it day by day. I, I never plan ahead more than a few months because I have no idea what it will look like. And I've lived under occupation and, and curfews in the past. And so I know why you never plan that far ahead, because you un understand that it's not in your hands. COVID was not the major problem it was for other people because we've lived under curfews. And so having your life shut down around you is something that we're used to doing um, and we make the best of it. So I think it, what, what, whatever happens in the future, Hisham has his family, his extended family in America and in England. And ultimately that's the most important thing that he can come back to. Um, but he does have really intense intellectual ambitions and he's going to really make a difference in this world because he's He's so hungry, so curious, he's so patient, he's so logical, and he delights in sharing information. So he delights in educating other people. Um, so he's going to be an um, amazing person in this world, and I'm just really glad that he still is in this world, because ultimately that's, the, that's the, the gift that we never stop being thankful for, that he didn't die that night. Elizabeth Price, I want to thank you 
for joining us on the Vermont Conversation uh, and for all you've done. Thank you. Uh,